But Jesus, we declare that you are King, that you are Lord, that you are magnificent, that you are wonderful. We declare that you are the all-powerful one. And we want to continue on that, that declaration that the church has been declaring since its inception. And it's simply this, Jesus is Lord. Yes. Jesus is Lord. Forever. So help us to take up that mantle in our day, in our generation, and to declare to the nations of the earth that Jesus rules and reigns. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the one that we place our hope and our trust in. Because the systems of the world fail us. The governance of the world fails us. As best as people try, we are human and we are broken. But we put our hope in an everlasting kingdom that will know no end and will only increase until the day of his coming again. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Bless the Lord, amen. Well, it is um, such a privilege and honor this morning to have with our worship team here this morning, Pastor Isaiah Sr. All the way. <laughs> All the way from Mexico, hanging out with Isaiah and Nicole for a week, and so just honored to have you worshiping with us and joining with us today. We, uh, what's that? The original, he's the OG. He's the original Isaiah, so bless you so much, so awesome. Well, we may be seated here this morning, so excellent. Well, um, what a beautiful time, just in his presence, worshiping together, and just with all that the Lord's doing. And Pastor Lori, thank you so much for being with us. We honor you today. We thank you for your, your 12 years of leadership and, uh, to our district. And uh, as many of you maybe are aware of already, uh, that this past week we had our district conference Pastor Lori had to announce uh, his retirement uh, a couple, couple months ago, and we voted in a new district superintendent in uh, Pastor Jason Small, and I just want to honor you for your leadership, for all that you've done for our district for 12 years, and for the legacy that you'll leave uh, to the Western Ontario District, and for raising up incredible leaders uh, for our denomination to kind of just take the next leg of the journey and hand off the baton to. So we thank you. We appreciate you, and uh, thank you for being with us. And, and from the bottom of my heart, my wife and I, Jennifer, we count it an honor and privilege to be the pastors of Glad Tidings Church here in Burlington. And we believe the Lord has called us here for this time and this season, and we're believing for great days ahead. Amen? We believe that God is up to something really good, and uh, that's, that's good for us because he's always accomplishing his purposes and plans. And we don't always know how it's going to look or how it's going to unfold, but he's true to his word, he's true to his promises, and we do count it an honor and privilege. And you have already welcomed us so amazingly, and we feel that we are family with this church. And uh, I love that, that dynamic here at GT, that this is truly family, we family, and uh, we're, we're excited for the next leg of the journey. Amen? All right, well, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Colossians chapter 1. If you're new to, G to GT here, uh, my name's Tim, one of the pastors here. And we're just excited that you would worship with us. And uh, we are starting a new series this morning uh, on the book of Colossians. And we will not be going for 21 weeks. <laughs> We're going to go for five weeks. And uh, we will then be into our Advent series. And so 
Uh, once again, this will be kind of a, an expositional type of series. We like to break it up between expositional and topical and just going through this book of the Bible. We won't cover every single verse in this book, but we will kind of highlight some major motifs and some major ideas through this incredible epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to this group, the, the, the young church of Colossae, and kind of a, a nowhere town. He was known for going to uh, big cities and kind of speaking there and just giving his heart and soul there. But he would often write to these smaller communities, these smaller towns, just to build them up and encourage them in their faith. I want to start off this morning um, by just kind of sharing something from my, my own journey a little bit. Uh, when I was a child growing up in church, um, I grew up as a pastor's kid. My, from the day I was born, my dad was a uh, Assemblies of God pastor, a Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada pastor. I like to say that I cut my teeth on the pew. I think I was born, and two days later, I was at church Sunday morning. And so that's just the way it was back then. You, you were always in church. You didn't hardly miss for anything. And uh, I remember the kid going to Sunday school. Anybody remember Sunday school? Remember those days, <laughs> right? Back in, the, back in the 80s and 90s when we had Sunday school and stuff like that. I remember going to Sunday school, and I remember as a, as a child hearing all the incredible stories about the children of Israel in the Old Testament. I remember reading these stories and having my incredible Sunday school teachers teach me these stories and hearing the great Exodus narrative of Moses leading the children of Israel out of captivity. I remember as a young boy thinking, man, what would that be like to live during that time? What would it be like to be one of the children of Israel coming out of Egyptian captivity and seeing the supernatural hand of God at work on behalf of his people? What would it be like to stand there and see the sea departed? What would it be like to see the, the food, the man and the quail provided from heaven? What would it be like to be led in the wilderness by a cloud by fire? What would it be like to experience all the supernatural things that the children of Israel Experience. What would it be like to see the walls of Jericho come down just by simply marching around and singing worship? So I remember thinking they must have had the loudest amplified sound system in the entire antiquities, right? In the entire ancient Near Eastern culture, right? But what would it be like to see those supernatural things happen in their time? Now, as we begin this new series today on the book of Colossians, what we're going to see is how often Paul actually retells the stories of Israel's history and their past in order to reveal their ultimate fulfillment and completion as being found in Christ. Essentially what Paul does in most of his epistles is he retells Israel's stories to reveal what Jesus has done and what Jesus is continuing to do and how ultimately this is far greater, far better, and more complete than anything the children of Israel experience in the Old Testament scriptures. And what Jesus offers is also better than anything the world may try to offer us in all of its false promises in order to try to convince us to find ultimate delight and satisfaction in those things. And so in the book of Colossians, over and over again, what we're going to see are these four major motifs. Simply this, Jesus is better. Secondly, Jesus is wiser. Thirdly, Jesus is truer. And then ultimately, Jesus is more fulfilling. That Jesus is the ultimate desire of our heart. 
He is the one that our very soul longs for. He is the one that we yearn for. Jesus is better than anything that the world has to offer. And actually, the children of Israel anticipated and looked forward to the days that we are actually now living in on this side of the cross. And so as a young boy, I looked back and said, what would it be like? But we must understand that they were actually looking forward and saying, what will it be like when God acts in time, space, and history to accomplish his purposes and his plans? What will it be like when Messiah comes? What will it be like when the kingdom rule and reign ushers into this earth? And so, beloved, we are living in incredible Days. Jesus is better. Jesus is wiser. He is truer. And ultimately, he is more fulfilling. Now, these truths that Paul lays out will ultimately counteract three main falsehoods that we see over and over again in the early church, especially here in Colossae. It's the idea of legalism connected to Judaism. It's the idea of the pagan cults connected to secret mystery revelations. And it's the idea of philosophical ideologies connected to politics and governance. And the big falsehood that we're going to see in the entirety of this book is that people were wrestling with in the first century, especially in the early church, this idea of, is Jesus ultimately enough? Do we need more to add to the gospel? Do we need to put our hope and our trust in these other things? Whether it came through religiosity and the, the Judaizers that Jesus is good, but you need to add the law to your life. You need to add these practices to your life. Or Jesus is good, but we need these mystery revelations and these secret revelations. Or Jesus is good, but we need to ultimately put our hope and trust in the politics and the governance of Rome. And the big falsehood here is simply this, Christ and the way of Christianity is good, but it is not enough. And so Paul, he's counteracting that over and over again. He's trying to say, no, all those things are empty. All those things are broken. All those things are not sustainable. But if you put your hope, faith, and trust in Jesus as Lord, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is, in fact, enough. And so we're going to see this this morning in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul, he actually retells some of Israel's story, and he kind of contrasts Israel's story to the fulfillment of what Jesus has done. He contrasts the idea of the exodus with a new exodus. And he contrasts the idea of creation ultimately with new creation. So if we would stand this morning for the reading of God's word, I'm going to pick it up here in verse 9. And Paul says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul does this over and over again. He says, if you believe rightly about Jesus, then show it exemplify it, that professing salvation, professing trust must also look like something. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
And he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. You may be seated this morning. And so in this retelling of Israel's story, in this contrast of the Exodus and the new Exodus, especially in verses 13 and 14 here, what Paul does is he picks up on that idea. He uses a type of language that the people would have understood from the Old Testament scriptures to say, remember when the children of Israel were delivered from oppression? Remember when Pharaoh ruled over them? Remember how God led them out of that oppression and ultimately into the promised land? This essentially is what Jesus has done. And he gives them three reasons for them to be thankful about the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He says, number one, Jesus has in fact qualified us. Meaning that he has given us a new name. He is giving us a new identity. How many people have ever felt unqualified for something before? As a young minister, 20 years old in youth ministry, I felt overwhelmingly unqualified for the job. But what the scriptures say is it's not based off of our works or based off of our merits or based off of our accomplishments. But when we are in Christ, Paul says, he has qualified us. He's given us a new name. He's given us a new identity. And then Paul says we need to be thankful because he's also delivered us. And it's not just that he brought us out of captivity and brought us out of oppression, but he has led us into a new promised land, the land of the Spirit, the land of heaven. And so therefore we see that he's delivered us, but he's also transferred us into his kingdom. And so the idea there is that we're not just saved from something, but we're actually saved to something. And I think that's important for us as Christians to remember. We're not just saved out of something, but we are now saved into a new kingdom way of living. And then thirdly, Paul says, be thankful because he has redeemed us, meaning that we are no longer bound by sin. And so because of what Jesus has done, we are no longer slaves. Rather, we are now sons and daughters in God's kingdom. And we have been given a new name, a new identity, and therefore we have an inheritance full of purpose, full of freedom, full of liberty. And we have not qualified ourselves by our own works and our own merits. But when we are in Christ, we are qualified because of Jesus' works and merits. And that's a phrase that you see Paul use all throughout his epistles, this idea of in Christ. When we are in Christ, we are saved because of his works and his merits. And we have been liberated from the oppression of sin. It no longer has control over us. And we now live in the promised land of the Holy Spirit where Jesus has rule and reign of our lives. And so what Paul makes abundantly clear in this passage is that this new exodus that is led by the finished work of Christ on the cross, and I want you to see this, is far more miraculous, far more spectacular than the exodus of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. That the greatest, most profound, supernatural miracle is that we as a broken and often rebellious people can be rescued from our captivity, forgiven of our sin, and brought into rightful relationship 
with our creator. Paul said in Corinthians, he said that the he who knew no sin took upon himself the sin of the world so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, that is the greatest miracle of all history. That is the miracle that the children of Israel and the prophets and the patriarchs looked forward to and anticipated. That we who are so broken, we who are often so rebellious, can be declared the righteousness of God and restored back the right relationship with our Creator. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that, that saved a wretch or someone like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was what? Blind, but now I see. The greatest miracle we will ever experience as followers of Jesus is in fact our salvation. It's a supernatural miracle. This is why the psalmist would often pray, even in times of brokenness where he's repentant, he would say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. When was the last time you spent time just dwelling on your salvation, dwelling on the goodness of God and rescuing you and saving you and delivering you out of bondage, out of captivity and bringing you into a new life? Paul says, let your heart be full of gratitude and thankfulness because of what Christ has done to bring you back to right relationship with your creator. He says, you don't need these mystery cults. You don't need these political ideologies. You don't even need the religiosity. What you need is a great understanding of how you are saved by grace through faith because of the finished work of Jesus at the cross. Jesus plus nothing equals everything in our lives. Amen? Let's read on. Verses 15 through 20 goes on. He says, and he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I love that line, verse 19. For in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this passage of scripture is very strophic in its nature. It's very poetic. And it's actually believed by many scholars to be an early hymn or an early creed of the church. And the entirety of the creed or the entirety of the hymn is about this contrast of creation and then new creation. And so the first strophe is a celebration about Jesus as the Christ and his role in creation. Once again, this was to counteract the false teaching that Jesus was just another man who maybe did some good things. That Jesus was just a good teacher or a revolutionary. That Jesus was actually created by God. What Paul is saying here is that actually no, this Jesus that we profess our faith in was in the beginning before the beginning began to begin. This Jesus is in fact 
God. Paul is actually aligning with the words of John's gospel later to be written to declare that Jesus was the first and the last. He has always been. And so the second strophe, it deals with the celebration of Christ's work in new creation, especially in regards to this theological concept called reconciliation. And once again, by it breaking into the here and now of a glimpse of what's to come, that the kingdom has come, but the kingdom is in fact still coming. And so I wanna break down each verse here just in segments and give us a, maybe a more robust or deeper understanding of this early hymn of the church and how it speaks profoundly to us. In this first row, verse 15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That word image in the original language, it speaks of the exact imprint or representation of something. You know, I often hear people ask, they say, how can we know anything about an invisible God? This is the idea of deistic type of thinking or even sometimes in the realm of agnosticism. How can we know that a God actually exists if we can't see him, we can't experience him? How can we know anything about God? What Paul does here in Colossians 1, he says that, that if you have questions or you wonder about who God is or what he's like or if a God even exists, we actually look to Jesus and we gain a great understanding of who God is. What Paul says is that Jesus has now come and made known to us who God actually is. If there is confusion about God, we look to Jesus to find clarity about God. I say it all the time that Jesus is in fact perfect theology. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 said long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also he created the world. He being Jesus, verse 3, is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says this, to say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. That in him, I love this, the invisible has now become visible. How can we know about a God that we can't see? And Paul says, we've seen him. Think about that. How can we know about a God that is invisible? And Paul says, I thought he was invisible too, but I was on the road to Damascus. I was persecuting the church, and Jesus came and revealed himself as a resurrected Lord. And so I'm not just talking about a God that we can't see or can't know. No, we have seen him, and we now can know him because Jesus has made this possible. The invisible has now become visible because of Jesus. Now given the context of what Paul is addressing, he is not stating Jesus as the firstborn to say that he was born or that he had a beginning. Rather that Jesus is the begotten of God the Father. And watch this, he flows from him and is before all creation with God. And we must also see that that language, firstborn, was often used in Scripture to speak of authority and superiority. 
And so when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn, what he is saying, he's the one that flows directly from the heart of God, and he has been given all authority and all superiority. He derives from God. His very essence is God. His very being is God. And he has been given all authority in heaven and earth. Verse 16 and 17, Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here what Paul writes is that this Jesus from Nazareth is not only the creator and sustainer of all things, but all things are ultimately created for his glory as he is the one true king of heaven and earth. The earth is created for his glory. The angels, because they loved to obsess over angels in the early church with the visitations and the things they were experiencing. Paul says, no, the angels actually were created for his glory. Everything in heaven and in earth is for the glory of the resurrected Lord. Once again, F.F. Bruce says they were created for him because all the Father's counsels and activities are centered in the Son. They were created through him because he is the divine agent in creation. They were created for him because he is the goal to which they all tend. And so the earth was created by him and for him. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, many scholars believe that as you read Genesis chapter 1, the language that is used there is actually full of all kinds of temple language. Because temples in ancient cultures were always the, always the place where the supernatural and the natural met. It was the place where heaven and earth became one. And so Moses, as he's inscribing or he's giving, getting someone to inscribe Genesis, he's essentially saying that the earth was created to be a temple for the glory of the Lord. And he created it for his purposes so that he may live and dwell inside of it. And even us as created beings, we are created also in his image. And we too were given responsibility and authority. However, in Genesis chapter 3, we read that we surrendered over our authority to the serpent who then became the prince of the air. Adam and Eve, the first Adam, was created in the image of God, placed in the temple to represent the glory of God to the earth around. But because of the rebellion of the first Adam, he surrendered over his authority to the serpent. But the second Adam... And this is what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 1. The second Adam, Jesus, came and he has actually taken back all authority in heaven and on earth. This is what we see in Matthew chapter 4 as Jesus is getting ready to go on his earthly ministry. He goes into the wilderness. And one of the places that the devil takes him is where? To a high place. And he shows him what? The kingdoms of the world. The devil knew why Jesus had come. And the devil, he desires to be worshipped. He desires to have all the attention centered on him. It's why he was kicked out of heaven. And he says to Jesus, he says, I will give you what you've come for if you compromise. If you bow down and worship me. 
And we know the story. Jesus doesn't compromise. He's willing to drink the cup of the Father. He's willing to lay down his life in radical sacrifice and love. And he accomplishes taking back authority by way of the cross, by way of radical suffering and radical love. And this is why in Matthew chapter 28, when he rises from the dead, he goes to his disciples and he says, guys, all authority in heaven and where? On earth have been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations. Go in my authority. I have come from God. I am begotten of God. And I have all authority in heaven and earth. What the enemy had, I took back. What you surrendered over in the garden, I've taken it back. Now you go and you walk in that same authority. This is the beautiful hymn of worship in Colossians here. Jesus, the begotten one, derived from the heart of God, now has all authority in heaven and on earth. Verse 18, Paul says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so Jesus, as the head of the church, has now begun his new created order in the world. He was in the beginning in creation. And now because of what he's done at the cross, he has begun new creation. And just as he was the firstborn of all creation, Paul now states he is also the firstborn of the new creation through the power of resurrection. That he has conquered death, thus destroying the works of sin and the devil. And the power of ultimate resurrection has now broken into the world to begin the process of making all things new. And that word resurrection was so important as Paul alludes to it here in Colossians chapter one because in the Jewish understanding, resurrection, the promise of resurrection, not was you were alive, you died, to be resurrected again, only to die again. Sometimes that's how we as Westerners think of resurrection. We're, we're dead, we're made alive, only to die again. But in the Jewish understanding of resurrection, you were dead, made alive, never to die again. Come on. You were dead, made alive, never to die again. And so Jesus, what Paul says here in this strophe is that he is the first fruits of that. And now we have a blessed hope. We have a beautiful promise that all of us who put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus as Lord, we were dead in our sins, but he has resurrected us to new life, to new creation. And we have a promise of eternal life, never to die again. Oh, the physical body may fade away. Our earthly bodies may fade away, but our hope is in the eternal realm, not a temporal realm. So Paul says that Jesus, he is the firstborn of that. He is the promise of that. What you saw in Jesus, that is what each of us who are in Christ also have the promise of. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That word fullness in the original language speaks of being all sufficient, or the idea of completeness. And so the idea here is that all the attributes of God, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, his glory, are ultimately found in Christ. 
Yes, Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. How can we know about God? We look to Jesus. How can we know what God is like? We look to Jesus. Paul says the fullness of God, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell inside of him. When Paul says that God was pleased to dwell, it reveals the joy the Father has, not only in the Son, but also in the way the Son is revealing who he really is. This means, I want you to see this, this means that up until Jesus, God was not fully known. God was not fully revealed. And when we read the Old Testament scriptures, we must read it with that understanding. They were only seeing in part. They were only knowing in part. There was all kinds of things happening in the Old Testament that ultimately even misrepresented God. But what Paul says is that Jesus has come and made him known. And this actually pleases the heart of God. Think about that. God is pleased by his son who has now revealed his true nature, what he is really like. Verse 20, almost down here. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the big idea here is that all the universe, the entire cosmos, because of the fallenness and brokenness of humanity, have actually been in conflict with its creator. And therefore all the universe, not just people, but the, the world is also in need to be reconciled back to him. And Jesus has now come the firstborn of all creation and the initiator of the new creation. And he is the one who has begun this. And he is ultimately the one who will complete this work. That this Jesus was more than a man, more than a good teacher, more than a revolutionary, more than a philosopher. But this Jesus is actually the one who is making all things new. This is the Jesus that we submit our lives to. This is the Jesus that takes lordship of our lives. He is the one who is ultimately making all things new in creation, but also in the realm of new creation. This is the only way in which human beings can experience reconciliation, wholeness, and healing. And I think that's a word for us today in the 21st century. The only way the cosmos, the earth, and humanity will ever experience wholeness, reconciliation, and healing is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus religion. Not Jesus plus politics. Not Jesus plus different cultural ideologies and, and philosophical ideologies and other spiritual experiences. Jesus alone is the only one who can bring healing to our world. And when we rest in the truth that we are created by him, but also for him, this is actually where our healing begins. St. Augustine in his book, Confession, says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. There are all kinds of things competing for the allegiance 
and the attention of the early church in Colossae. And Paul writes them this letter to say, put those things aside. They will fail you. They will let you down. They will not fulfill your ultimate need. They will not satisfy your soul. They will not fix the problems in your world. Only Jesus can do this. And until you learn to rest in the truth that you were created by him and for him, you will always be restless. So that's a lot of exegesis. That's a lot of theology. But let's bring this home into the 21st century here this morning. We are living in a restless world. Have you noticed this? Anybody notice this? We are living in a restless world. Western culture is overwhelmed by restlessness that manifests in agitation, anxiety, fear, hopelessness, antagonism, and division, and strife. And unfortunately, that same spirit has a way of creeping into the beloved of God, into the people of God, into his church. I would actually propose that this restlessness is a major contributor to the identity crisis that we are seeing now in our world, especially amongst the younger generation. Our heart is restless until we find our ultimate rest in you. The truth that we are created by you and we are created for you. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is going to fix this? Government has their idea of what's going to fix it. Philosophy has its idea, and sociology has its idea of what's going to fix it. Education has their idea of what's going to fix it. And those things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, and we need good systems within. But the only thing that is going to fix this restlessness is being known by Jesus and deeply knowing Jesus. I know it sounds so simple, but I would propose it's the most important thing we grab a hold of here this morning. The restlessness in my being can only be resolved when I learn to rest in the truth. I am created by God, and I am created for God. And as the earth was created as a temple for his glory to dwell in, I am created as a temple of the Holy Spirit for his glory to dwell in. And as the earth is groaning and travailing, longing for the return of the king, humanity is groaning and yearning and longing for the return of our king. Because we're functioning, functioning counterintuitive to the way we were actually created to function. And this is why Jesus has begun the work of new creation, which involves reconciliation. There are two major ideas in Western culture that are being literally crammed down our throats all the time. When you become aware of it, you see it everywhere. And it's two ideas 
that much of Western culture has bought into the falsehood that if we do better in these ideas, then we will see progress in our society. We will see healing and wholeness in our society. The first one is the realm of progressivism. And it's this idea, the more we advance in social reform and in systems development and enlightenment and education and technological advancement, the better we will become as a society. Now, once again, those things are not bad. They're good, but they are not going to fix the problem of restlessness in our society. Post-enlightenment, we've had that project going on for quite a while now. How are we doing The next one is the realm of secularism. And this is huge right now in Canada. And it's even creeping into the church. The more we allow space for radical individualism to floors, the more we will become holistic as a society. And once again, how's it working? If COVID has taught us anything, it's simply this. Progressivism and secularism are failing before our eyes. Failing before our eyes. What people thought was going to bring healing and unity to the earth is failing before our eyes. But oh, that this would be a time where the church, where the people of God rise up and say those things aren't necessarily bad, but our hope is not in those things. Our hope is in Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Our hope is in Jesus, the firstborn, the begotten of the God, the one who represents who God is actually like. Our hope is in Jesus, who is in the beginning, in creation, and he has begun the work of new creation. And I am a temple of his presence. I am a temple of his spirit. And I will do what I have been called to do. And that's to reflect his glory and the earth ultimately and firstly. We have to recapture that understanding. And Paul speaks profoundly to that in this book. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen? I want you to stand to your feet here this morning. Prayer team, I want to invite you to come up to the front. Worship team, if you would come back. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. A new career will not fix your restlessness. More money will not fix your restlessness. A new spouse will not fix your restlessness. A different position of leadership will not fix your restlessness. All the medical and psychological care in the world as good and thankful we are of those things. I thank God for them. I've utilized them in my own life and they are gifts from God but ultimately they won't fix the ultimate restlessness in our lives. Pastor Tim, are you saying it's as simple as Jesus? Yes. Yeah. I'm actually crazy and bold enough to declare that truth in the 21st century that knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus is what is going to fix 
and resolve your restlessness. And those other tools will come into play to help you walk that out and process things. But at the core of it, at the root of it, is simply knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. And we as a church, we've got to recapture that message again and not be afraid of it. So this morning, if you're here and you are struggling, you feel restless, agitation, strife, division, frustration, Maybe just even you feel just so unsettled in, your, in the season of life. I want to encourage you when I'm done praying corporately to come and receive prayer from some of our prayer team. If you're here this morning and you never decided that you want to make Jesus Lord of your life, I believe this is a now moment. This is a Kairos moment. The Holy Spirit is at work in this place here and he's calling mankind to repentance. It's not an easy decision. It's a difficult decision. It's the most challenging thing you will ever have to live and walk out. But beloved, it is so worth it. When you say, Jesus, be Lord of my life. Help me to die so that I might be resurrected, never to die again. If you're here this morning, you wanna make that prayer confession, I wanna invite you to come and receive prayer here this morning. But church, people of God, this week, carry this message in your heart. Carry this message into a restless world. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we will be restless until we learn to rest in Him, in Him alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that is true. I thank you that your word speaks prophetically and profoundly even to us here in the 21st century. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that is in our midst here this morning. Come, do the work that only you can do. Go beyond my communication. Go beyond my articulation and bring conviction to our hearts so that we may repent and turn towards you and your purposes and your freedom and your liberty. And Jesus, we thank you that you are in the beginning, in creation, but you have also begun the work of new creation. Have your way in our lives, in this day and this generation, for the sake of your glory in Burlington, Ontario, and the surrounding area, in the name of Jesus, amen and amen.